Hello, and welcome to Prophetic Voices, Preaching and Teaching Beloved Community, a podcast from the Episcopal Church's Office of Reconciliation, Justice, and Creation Care, where we explore the season and the lectionary through the lens of social justice. I'm your host, Reverend Shaniqua, Staff Officer for Racial Reconciliation, and I'm so glad you could join us. In this episode of Prophetic Voices, we'll be discussing the Easter Vigil Lectionary. Our amazing guests this week are the Reverend Valerie Mayo, who is a priest in the Episcopal Diocese of Texas and serves as the Director of Beloved Community Initiatives at Seminary of the Southwest. She is an active member of the Union of Black Episcopalians and continues to share her gifts with the Episcopal Church Sacred Ground Team, Office of African Descent Ministries, and the Church Pension Group Credo Experience. She loves working to build bridges across communities and cultures. The prayerful Sister Tammy Scholastica, who is a vowed member of the Order of Benedictine Canons in South Dakota. She is a devoted grandmother, enjoys biking and being active in her communities. And last but not least, the thoughtful Tamara Plummer, who is a cradle Episcopalian from Brooklyn, New York. She serves as program officer in the U.S. Disaster Program at Episcopal Relief and Development, where she leads the Episcopal Asset Map Project and hosts the podcast Pursuing Call. Welcome, my friends. Thank you, everybody, for being willing to be here. I'm so glad that you're able to share your wisdom and knowledge uh, with all of our listeners and with me, of course. What do you think is important to keep in mind for Easter Vigil or Easter this year? This question, you know, contextually, I grew up in another faith tradition and was, you know, raised in an Episcopal church setting that didn't offer the Easter Vigil as a service growing up. So my first experience of the Easter Vigil was during uh, my service in the Episcopal Diocese of Kentucky, serving as their urban missioner and urban partnership convener. So prior to my arrival, the diocese had established um, something really cool, which is the urban partnership. And it was comprised of like four core congregations in the city of Louisville and then four like supporting or surrounding congregations on the outskirts. So it was a total of eight congregations that were working together. And part of the mission, if you will, was to build not only relationships, but to kind of serve the broader communal needs. And during my tenure, I had the privilege of gathering these eight congregations together. Um, Now, what I must name is that I arrived in Louisville in the height of our pandemic times, Mm. you know, as demonstrations were going on in the street, calling for justice for both Breonna Taylor and David McAtee, who had been murdered in the city at the hands of public officials. So it was a really intense time. So as I reflect on those experiences, the diocese had just launched into fellowship hours at the beginning of 22, and they were set to do their second. And these were like in-person fellowship hours to give the opportunities for these congregations to meet in person. Um, And they were set quarterly. And right when they were beginning the second one, the whole world shut down, right? So part of my role was, you know, to keep the spirit and the heart of these gatherings alive. And we launched into a series of like virtual fellowship opportunities, which then turned in organically to seasonal Bible studies and book studies, which it was shared leadership among these eight congregations and shared discussions and storytelling. And we were able to bridge gaps, if you will. So, you know, just thinking of everything that we were dealing with at that particular time, right, reflectively, we were all under so much pressure. Um, I think that we all can remember the intensity mm-hmm. of that season and bringing worship at a time where we are no longer in the building, 
you know, just I think out of trying to not have burnout, we leaned into a shared Holy Week um, within those four core congregations, you know, where we partnered together with our planned worship. So Monday, Thursday was at the Church of Our Merciful Savior, which is um, our historically Black congregation. I term is our Black Cathedral. Our Stations of the Cross and Good Friday services were at Calvary Episcopal Church. Holy Saturday was where I served. We did a pre-recorded meditative service at St. George's. And then the Easter Vigil was at the cathedral, right? So not only did it serve as a culmination of our shared Holy Week together, but it was really like this climatic experience of all of the pre-work, everything that we had done in the life of our community, right? So thinking about that time together and the two years of being in this wilderness space and being able to come together and highlight the talents and gifts, everything from not only our worshipers, but leadership. And I think the bishop was happy because I think now it's uh, become an annual tradition mm. to have this shared time together and to lean on one another in a very intentional and particular way. I remember deep love and affection and pride. Each of the four core congregations looked at the biblical passages and then with their members for the Easter vigil, they had their own depiction, whether it was through poetry or music. The priest at the Church for Our Merciful Savior, Tom Miller-Price and I, we did, a, I guess, like a theatrical display of dry bones. Mm. You know, so just remembering that time, and, and I'm now at, you know, Seminary in Southwest, I know that we also have a vibrant life and community through our shared Holy Week experiences, but I'm missing those relationships. So keeping in mm. mind for the Easter Vigil for me is the power of our community and all that it is that we experience together and what we went through and then how we were able to lift each other up within worship space. The words that stood out to me were story, wilderness, and leaning in. And then I thought about transition, the ways in which the vigil is a transitional time mm -hmm. as we go from you know our history and telling our story to living in the hope of the resurrection and just enjoying and relishing in the joy of it, particularly at a time where there are lots of kinds of disasters happening. We've all gone through this global pandemic, this communal experience of a pandemic. Some people are still going through it while other people are on to the next. And at the same time, so many disasters happen, right? We had racial reckoning things. We had economic crises, like all these mm -hmm. things are happening. I want us to hold a lot of space for transition that not all of us are at the same place at the same time. Some of us are on the resurrection side already. <laughs> and some of us are still in that valley of dry bones, just mm -hmm. praying <laughs> that they can survive. How can this be a place where all of that is allowed to happen at the same time in a communal space where a lot of people for kind of the first time are really meeting in public in their worship spaces together? I'm the secretary of our church also, and I am truly blessed with my boss, who is strength and perseverance. Mother Christina O'Hara, she's been on with Shaniqua before. We never closed down. We refused to do that. It was she and I and her husband running the camera that kept basically Good Shepherd going on Zoom where people could connect with us that way. And I'm so blessed to have her as a priest and a friend and a little sister. But when we were able then to come to allow people into the church then, the Easter vigil that we had was breathtakingly beautiful. I was moved to tears over the whole thing by the lighting of the fire and the exultant and the readings and to have us all 
back together under one roof, not mm. seeing each other through a camera under one roof, singing hymns, saying psalms. It was almost as if we were reborn into what we are now. Mm. Valerie, I was thinking kind of about what you were saying about the different Holy Week events. And it made me think of like the Triduum is right, one service that's split into like three parts and how being able to do that at the different churches sort of made them all part of that one service. And so I just thought, I was like, that's such a beautiful imagery of how we could come together as Christ's body and do that. What other liturgical suggestions do you have for Easter Vigil? I know we've heard about the exultant, we've heard about lighting the fire. What other things do folks have or ideas? Well, I'm going to say lean into climate change in New York because we apparently have no winter. So mm. if you can do things outside, actually, like I really miss the cathedral in Vermont and lighting that fire outside, even most of the time it was cold because it's Vermont. But <laughs> then we could see the fire from the inside. Mm -hmm. How are the ways that you can experience journey that the vigil is taking us on? Not just through the words and the actions that we normally do, but what other physical manifestations can happen. I love this idea of having congregations give their interpretation of those stories. A lot of them we've heard for so long. What would it be like to tell that story from a modern version? This is sacrilegious. I'm not a priest. But don't read the readings. Like who mm -hmm. has been in the Valley of the Dry Bones? Who is in that place in their mm -hmm. life? What is that story? What is their resolution? What does that breath mean for them? I'm not big on like, I'm very Episcopalian, I'm like a testimony all the time kind of girl, but I feel like this is a space where our stories need to be honored and celebrated from diverse places. So what are the ways that we can incorporate people's stories into the service itself and not just have clergy tell us their thoughts and opinions about readings that we have heard 50 times? You know, year one was more virtual um, and it was a skeletal crew and even the fire was lit, it was pre-lit and then shown for us in a virtual offering, if you will. By the time we got to year two and we gathered in the courtyard together, the congregations from each of these different churches and to really live into our oneness, right? And then we processed inside of the cathedral together really and truly hearing the clergy dictation of how we should offer the readings, but having the people through their different creative instruments. One woman read the Genesis story with poetic license while there was a musician playing in the background, just bringing the feeling of the story alive for the people. With the urban partnership, we had a pickup choir, if you will, leading up to the Easter vigil, the shared service. So every week, or at least six weeks, maybe eight, our church didn't have a choir per se, but we did have those in community who loved to sing, mm -hmm. to rehearse together and then be up in the rafters singing over the congregation. It was just, it was electrifying. The spirit of God in the place. And, you know, to your point, just raising up our belovedness, right? The gifts that God has bestowed upon us and doing that in a way where we are being community. What was also beautiful was, you know, the cathedral is located on Second Street. So we have members of our unhoused community that kind of hang out and form relationship with those who serve. And during the procession, there was a disgruntled spirit, one of discontent, if you will. There was some explicit remarks, but she was friend of the community, right? Mm -hmm. But it's like... Even in that space, she came in, mm -hmm. she came in, she sat down and we all witnessed together how that spirit of discontent was quieted. 
in the sharing of these gifts and lifting up, you know, our tradition, our faith. And she remained and began to sing along, right? So it's like, that's also part of our journey. You know, that's who we are as a welcoming community. No one asked her to be excused. She was fully celebrated. That also was an opportunity to witness the power of the divine mm -hmm. to even quell disgruntled energy, which really was majestic and beautiful. Mm -hmm. I always like the procession around the church part. If folks do that, mm -hmm. I always think that's beautiful. And it's a great way to get folks. I've seen like, Valerie, I just heard your story, but I've also seen like in my own, in the Orthodox church when they did that, we had people come off the street and come into church who clearly weren't part of the congregation. Of course, yeah. they were denied communion, which was very sad. And, and I was upset about that. But at least the spirit called them in. You know what I mean? They got like, obviously, there was something there. And so I always think that procession is so valuable. People are complaining about ASA all the time. Like that seems to be the biggest complaint these days. Mm. Why are then you going to go lock yourself up with 25 people inside a building? Right. <laughs> What would witnessing the vigil and celebrating this transition and telling the story of the history of God's love look like in public space and with other people who are also 25, particularly if you're in places that are hugely populated, partner with somebody that's not Episcopal. Maybe you don't need to have a Catholic and a Lutheran. Well, I don't know. People's communions are weird. <laughs> no, maybe you don't have to have these individualized services. What would it look like in even rural or communities for a bunch of folks to get together? What could the Episcopalians teach the radical Baptists who don't maybe do an Easter vigil? What that looks like? What could we learn from their Resurrection Sunday? Like, what are the ways that we could learn from each other? There's an opportunity because our churches are not packed to the rim necessarily. Mm -hmm. When Valerie talked about with this brilliant services that they were having, I am envious of that. We have a church that is full, as the Shaniqua can attest to, and it's not full. Let me rewind. 20 to 25 people. I think we have probably 99.9% .9 white, 60 and older. We have no children. We have no youth because that's where we are in our journey. If we're going to sing, we're going to sing like, I don't know, what would you say, Shaniqua? When Shaniqua comes and she sings, she lights the church on fire. <laughs> and people adore that but as long as she's doing the work they're okay if they have to sing themselves it's real low you know with the hymnal up here mm -hmm. so i am envious valerie of having all of that wonderfulness that you're close to there because we don't have that in our church Similarly, so I think that the station where I served at St. George's, I think they went, as the story goes, maybe five years without a musician. And so it was, you know, the congregation kind of just singing together. And then lo and behold, they were gifted with a talented pianist. My reflection is on, you know, yes, we were very intentional about holding the space for this fellowship and this opportunity to gather, but it was also out of desperation. You know, we were thirsting to be in community, really and truly, like many had grown weary during that time of being apart and out of our rhythm. And, you know, it was like definitely all the things that were lost during the pandemic, but I named this as a true gift of something that was gained, was for us to lean into ministry and shared ministry very differently. To my knowledge, I don't think 
that the diocese had come together in that way prior to. Hmm. It's now something that lives on. I miss it. I miss the people. I, I miss the conversation. I miss the energy. I miss just leaning to my clergy pals and, you know, being like, okay, well, who in your congregation is going to, you know, represent and, and in what ways? Yeah, I'm with you. It was barrenness that showed forth in a type of abundance. It was a transitional moment for us as a diocese. We have a Sudanese congregation. Their church got vandalized and somebody took mm-hmm. all their copper piping. And so they have they can't worship there because it can't be heated and until those pipes are fixed and all that. And so they've been worshiping at Good Shepherd. And we just had our vestry retreat on Sunday. And so like our vestry retreat was ending about the time that they were coming for worship. So you could just hear like the drums, and the music, and they have like these little crosses that they shake as they're, you can't see my, I'm doing a visual of it, but these little crosses they shake and they got like this little thing that has like sand inside or pebbles or something that they'll shake as they're, and they're singing and stuff. And I just love hearing that. And I'm hopeful that like, as we do Holy Week, I'm sure they're going to want to do their own too, but there's probably going to be some overlap, like with Easter Vigil, we probably would do that together or some things like that. I'm excited to see kind of what that might look like. And Deacon uh, John, who's from the Sudanese congregation, he would always come because they don't do Monday, Thursday service. I don't know if they do Good Friday, but he'd always come for that because he would always want to do the foot washing and stuff as part of his diacono ministry. It's wonderful. Oh, I also want to say, I love the idea of like taking the readings, taking on a different look. Mm -hmm. And it's not sacrilegious to not do the readings. The rubrics say you have to do two. One of them has to be Exodus. You have to do one other. So if you're trying to be really special, just read those two, read them. Everything else you could interpret, you could do a song, you could do liturgical dance. I just, I love this idea. And I love the idea of, because I think it makes it so more real for people to say, this is my Valley of the Dry Bone experience, Mm -hmm. or this was my time. I know our former bishop who lost his daughter, she committed suicide and he talked about the flood story as that was his experience of her loss. Like he was like, there was a time before the flood and then the grief just kind of came like this flood. And he talked about how hard it was for him to get over that. And I feel like he was on this little arc just out in the middle of nowhere. And like, he linked like the dove conversation to mm-hmm. like people reached out and asked him if he was okay. And, you know, finally he's like, I felt like, you know, I knew I was going to be okay. And maybe the ark stopped on the mountain, but we still had all this water that has to go away. And it was a very powerful story. And I could see somebody maybe not that intense, but telling a story similar, you know, like how have they felt like they were in a flood or what's the story about salvation or, you know, whatever. Or if you're in a disaster impacted area, like some people literally have experienced flooding. Yeah. There are people who literally have experienced a lot of the things like loss of food security. These are all things that we have experienced today. What is that story? And how does that connect to God's love in your life? That's the purpose of the vigil. Mm-hmm. I just think we've got to get out of being so dedicated to the biblical text in its just specific original form that we decided was a specific original form. Or when you learn about Bible, you learn none of that is actually valid. So <laughs> it's all kind of a guessing game of interpretation. So let's just continue that tradition of the biblical tradition. What of those stories are your favorite? Which story do you think is important that like you expect to hear that at the Easter Vigil? If we don't do dry bones, I don't want to be there. I mean, that's just like... Okay. <laughs> okay. I've mostly gone to Black churches my whole life. And the, I'm just like, anytime I go to a church and they don't do dry bones, I was like, what is wrong with you? <laughs> Father Tom and I, I don't have the script before me, but it was one that he had. So it was like a play enactment of the dry bones. I think year one, I may have been the voice of God and he was Ezekiel and then we reversed it year two. 
even in that story where we had um, the rhythm and, you know, the people involved in the telling of the story and even the sense of humor, it was like, you know what? These bones are dead. You know, you want me to do what? Mm -hmm. You know, and just breathe on them. So, you know, just even like engaging the people differently because there's an indictment there, mm-hmm. beloveds. There is an indictment of us mm-hmm. all. If we don't have the dry bones, I'm with you. No vigil happened. <laughs> <laughs> I really like the flood story. I was thinking about the flood story also because most or at least many indigenous cultures have their own flood mm-hmm. story. And I could see us telling that story in place of the flood mm-hmm. story from the Bible. It's very similar. Ours is a little bit different. There's an eagle that comes and saves this pregnant mom and she has babies and twins. And anyway, but I like that idea of trying to enculturate it. I've seen that done before. I'll focus on Exodus later. Tammy, what about you? I like a new heart and a new spirit. To me, it's about renewal Mm. because we all need that. A new heart I will give you and a new spirit I will put within you. Don't we all need that? Mm -hmm. It's not always read though. And it is one of the shorter ones. (laughs) So so when Christina and I are trying to figure out which readings, we always do the dry bones. We always do the flood. And I'm like, let's do these short ones now too. We too, yeah, did a a new heart and a new spirit. Um, And you shall be my people and I will be your God. And I think we may have even taken the text from the message Mm. just to kind of change it up a little bit, if my memory is serving me correctly. But yeah. Can I tell you the one that I can't reconcile with is the Moses after the canicle that's just like, you've thrown your horsemen into the water. Like I I just, every time we read it, I'm just like, why are we reading this? This feels so not right. Those men didn't want to go into the water. They were hired as army people. Like I want a different way of saying that canicle than rejoicing in the death of a group of people. That's the one that I always want to take out. Canicle aid. Yeah, that's a tough one. Yeah, yeah. Canical eight. Horse and rider have been sent and like, no. <laughs> I want to say that the gentleman's name, and God forgive me, but Lewis Washington, he came in for us. He was a member of the community who had a relationship with two of my members. And year one, he came and he sung Go Down Moses mm-hmm. as our filler for that since lost his life to the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, so year two, he was with our God, our creator. But that was one way to treat that particular text in a different way. Yeah. We've done that also. Mother has decided that we, um, instead of doing all the canticles and the psalms, we'll sing a song or hymn. And we do Go Down Moses. I mean, it rocks the house. Mm -hmm. I've heard it sung both ways too. Like where it's sung like very slowly, almost like a lullaby kind of like go down like that versus like the more happy clappy kind of style and i've heard both i think they both work maybe easter vigil i might want the slow kind of sultry one mm-hmm. it's powerful mm-hmm. i love the exodus story i also think i struggle with some of the death imagery that's in psalms and in that canicle mm-hmm. but at the same time i'm like if somebody had hurt my family, you know, I might be there with the anger and I might, you know, like, Mm -hmm. I don't know that I am together enough and like holy enough to be able to just step back and be like, no God, let them live. Cause I think I would be like, no, we are going to get this and we are going to take them out. That's a struggle that I have anyway. 
no, that's like way more valid a feeling. I appreciate that interpretation of like, oh no, these people are trying to kill me. No, y'all can go down in the water. I get that feeling as well. <laughs> One of the things I'm thinking about too is if we were to look at like George Floyd or Tyree Nichols and we think about like the police killing them if those police were out in public and there was no other police i could just see community coming down and a swarm Mm -hmm. some of those raw emotions are the writers of those canicles and psalms have felt those and i think that's where some of that's coming from that space of deep Mm -hmm. pain and deep anger right as we grieve Mm -hmm. let's talk about exodus a little bit what in that story stands out for you Hmm. i'm thinking about stubbornness for some reason i don't know why that's coming up for me perseverance and stubbornness like it's not even just stubbornness from the side that you expect right it's not just stubbornness from the oppressor it's stubbornness from the oppressed Mm -hmm. and being like no 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 i'm good i'm gonna stay right here in this land of oppression or no 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 we got to go so there's this (laughs) way in which people's desire to not comply is an interesting thing for me i don't know that that has anything to do with anything but it's just something that's rising up for me Hmm. now i appreciate that too like god is telling you know moses like why do you cry out to me like tell the israelites to go forward we need to step forward. So I hear that, you know, the uncertainty, the fear response, the stagnant response, flight or fight response. I know that I'm a freezer. So there's another F, you know, Mm -hmm. when overwhelmed, I'm just going to stay right here too. So it's like the spirit of God having to urge the people, this is for your benefit Mm -hmm. to be set free from this situation. Your liberation is at hand and for the people to not even fully recognize what that truly means, you know, to be so bound. I would like some spirit of God to motivate the stubbornness of today. I guess maybe that's what it is, is that I feel like a lot of people are doubling down on stupid or doubling down on doing things that do not serve them, but are still comforting and are harmful. Mm. And so stop complying with that. (laughs) Like, Like stop being stubborn. Spirit of God, push us through the water. Spirit of God, push the water aside so that we can walk through. Beloveds, I'm in Texas, and I think that we understand, you know, what is at hand with our legislature Mm. and our governor is criminalizing diversity, equity, and inclusion. Mm -hmm. It's happening right here, right now. So even as our lawmakers and our faith leaders are trying to advance forward, it's like, okay, people of God, you too are being Mm -hmm. called out. There is work for you to do. Mm -hmm. You know, these top two officials, they represent all of us. How are you? you know, lifting up even your own voice, right? Come on, people of God. This too involves us at this critical moment, at this critical time. Even though we say that there's a proclamation and a separation of church and state, you know, it's the oneness. So going back to the oneness of God's beloved people and, you know, how are we standing up, speaking out and holding the gap for one another in this time. It's real and apparent right here, right now with true implications on black and brown bodies in the name of deception. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Tell them to go forward. <laughs> and not just to reopen your building and establish your budget back to what it was. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. That's the glory that we're waiting upon is to have a church that looked like a church that you imagined from your childhood. I don't know that that's God's kingdom looks like. I don't know. <laughs>
We have that in South Dakota too, as Shaniqua can attest to. We have the glory of a female governor, but she is an extreme conservative, so far to the right, can't walk straight. And what she has done to the LGBTQ, you know, the people of color, all to keep her state as white as possible. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's sad. So, and she claims that she's a Christian. So let's pray for conversion. I always pray that she finds and sees the light soon. There's a way in which that unloved message of white Christian nationalism has seeped into the story of Christianity. And I maybe actually the answer is Shaniqua for this year is to demonstrate what actual love and what actual mm. Christianity looks like that is not centered on a white national Christian perspective. And that's not conservative or whatever. Like to me, white Christian nationalism has nothing to do with whether or not you believe in a small government or taxes. Right. Like we can argue yeah. about that on another day, but this right. is like a disease that is mm-hmm. not about Jesus mm-hmm. at all. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. If it is about Jesus in South Dakota, it's the Jesus that you see on the Catholic posters. He's white. He's of a certain height. He's of a certain weight. That's not who Jesus is or right. was. Right. And I think it needs to be preached more, especially in South Dakota. Mm-hmm. Everybody needs to hear who Jesus really was and where he was from. hmm and for us to get the opportunity to know Jesus, right? Absolutely. Truly know who Christ is, right? That's the challenge. Changing the distorted narrative and the imagery. I really appreciate Bishop Terry White in the Diocese of Kentucky as he met with us as leaders and was like, look at the images that are within your building, mm-hmm. right? And what does that mean? If we say that we're a place of welcome, would people stepping into this space feel welcomed in this space and the iconography and, you know, just unpacking some of these things that have held as truth, (laughs) Mm -hmm. but have never been true. So leaning into it in a different way and definitely engaging in these difficult conversations, like institutional practices that continue to uplift white Christian nationalism narratives, right? You know, that's why I celebrate the, you know, for those who have taken part in this sacred ground journey and being in these brave circle spaces to build relationship and to start talking about things that folks we haven't talked about before in a very intentional way to offer wisdom through our own experiences. Each one of us has a story to share, uplift, and tell. So I think similarly, as we look at death, right? Dying with and through Christ and being reborn again, we need to put a death to these falsehoods Mm. that have ruled our life together globally and in community. And this is the part that I think we can lean in on our Jewish brothers and sisters. Like the reason why they tell that Exodus story every year, they have ritual about it. They tell the truth about it. What are the ways that we're leaning into the rituals of telling the truth of the story Hmm. and remembering it for real, for real, so that we don't repeat the bad lessons and the bad practices of not following God's will and God's way. Amen. The point of the Exodus story and why it gets retold by our Jewish siblings is they want their children and their children's children and the gender. Like, isn't it in Mm -hmm. the story? Like, you will tell this story. You will do these practices so that you remember. Right. For me, I really appreciate what you were saying about the, like, we need to keep stepping forward. And I think sometimes when 
challenges happen and you're like, we need to do something. And they're like, if we want to try something new and the vestry or whomever is always like, oh no, we've never done that before. Oh no, we can't do that. And like, they put these roadblocks in every single idea you have. And I'm like, let's just try it. Let's just try it. And so what, what have we lost if we failed? Like, let's try it. The other thing I was thinking about is like so many times in my life, when I think I'm at the lowest or I think like I'm just done, like, you know, like you're there at the water and you just, there's no way you're going to get through it. That's like the moment that something shifts. And I think it's because mm-hmm. I let go of whatever I was holding on to so hard. And maybe our church could do that too. What do we need to let go of so that we can experience that shift or experience that gift of the Holy Spirit to do whatever it is? And maybe it's let go of our buildings or maybe it's let go of our righteousness, all of the white Jesus all over. And I didn't coin that word and somebody else taught it to me, but I love that word. I talk about it all the time, the righteousness. That's a great one. <laughs> What ocean or sea do you think we as a society or as a church need to cross in order to be free? Mm. I'm going to stand on this one because I stand on it every time I talk on this thing. (laughs) We need to let go of the idea that there is a particular place that has knowledge and power and answers and that there are very clear and simple answers that will solve all the problems of the church. We got a big old book with what, 50 something books in it? (laughs) And multiple chapters. And none of those people had actual clear solutions to anything until they did what you said, Shaniqua, and said, let go and let God. We need to cross the ocean of certainty and like lean into our Episcopal tradition of ambiguity. Let's figure it out as we move because that is a part of our tradition. I actually think we need to go back. We need to be traditional in that sense. What is the core beliefs and the core things that ground us and what foundations can we stand upon Mm. so that we can move through the water? There's no real good answer there. So that's so why I accept that that's not really an answer. But I think there's this way in which it's like, oh, we just need a black presiding bishop and then we won't be racist. We just need mm-hmm. a blah, blah, blah. And then we won't do blah. We just need a this person. We just need a, there's only one Messiah. He is dead and risen. That's it. There's no other Messiahs. Everything else, we just trying to figure it out. So. <laughs> and I think we need to reflect and recognize what is at stake if we don't begin to truly value the humanity and the personhood in one another, like what Mm. is truly at stake and leaning in and standing firm in what it is that we believe, but really unpacking some of these things that have held us bound. I think in the work that I do, we speak of oppressed bodies and tend to speak of marginalized bodies in a particular way as those melanated bodies. But our siblings of a lighter hue, going back to the righteousness, what I have personally experienced is the self-deception in the freedom and the privilege, but that's actually the root of the oppression, Mm -hmm. right? And so treating our conversations that way that you too are bound, (laughs) like you need to be liberated. In Christ, we really can, you know, begin to experience this freedom. In Christ, we have been set free. You know, uh, Moses is telling the people, do not be afraid, stand firm and see deliverance. If we can't be truly, presiding Bishop Curry, rooted in Jesus and know Christ, what is at stake? Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, I know this is a lot, but I just have to read This Here Flesh by a Cole Arthur Riley, who runs Black Liturgies. If you haven't read it or you don't have it, like this should be your Lenten <laughs> meditation or your post-Lenten meditation. And she talks about that same thing about the colonizers. She says, but maybe it's not that the oppressors think they're worthy of more but that they believe their present self is in fact worthless. 
It's the work of people incapable of perceiving their dignity without attempting to diminish someone else's. Mm. When you're thinking prophetically, not just thinking prophetically of like, how do we join with the oppressed group or the marginalized community? But what is it about ourselves that we have lost by living in the deception of our giftedness? Mm. And the title of the book is This Here Flesh, H-E-R Flesh. And it's um, Cole Arthur Riley. And she's on Instagram as Black Liturgies. If you don't follow that, you also are not living your best life. I love reading the Black Liturgies, like some of the stuff that gets written in there. I'm just like, oh my gosh, that is so amazing. Something that I was thinking about crossing is this both crossing the racism or all the isms, but then also the internalized piece of that. I think, you know, because of the whiteness, all of the white Jesuses that we see or male Jesus or cisgender Jesus, all of that makes us blind to the Jesus in the black and brown and trans bodies that we see around us. And I think if we can be able to recognize the Jesus in each other or the sacred for that matter, if you're not Christian, in each other, I think that's the gift Somewhere on the other side, we can see that sacred in the other person. And that's where we can start to build that relationship and come back to wholeness. In my nativity, if you will, I just want to slap a Bible down in front of somebody and tell them to read the gospel. (laughs) Really read the gospels. What is Jesus asking us to do in the gospels? Mm -hmm. Instead of muddying the water, just read the gospels. With an open heart and an open mind. Hear what Jesus the rebel is saying to us. Mm-hmm. I had a discussion with my grandson last night. He explained, if you look at Jesus, what a rebel he was. My grandson's trans. You know, his hair's down to here, and he's just this lovely little, I just hug him and kiss him and just eat him up. And I just explained to him, you know, just because this kid's at school think you're a rebel because you've got long hair, Jesus was the big rebel of all of us. So just mm-hmm. remember that. He shook things up for us all. Mm-hmm. Well, Tammy, I love that you mentioned the conversation with your grandson. Mm-hmm. I have an 11-year-old son, a 20-year-old. Our kids are watching us. They are. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, for my son to witness some of the things that are indicative of righteous behaviors, if you will. I'm loving this term, by the way. So thank you. It's <laughs> <laughs> a good one. And to, you know, make a comment to me, you know, where it's like, well, but mom, they claim to believe in Jesus and for an 11 year old to recognize, but they don't even know who Christ is. Our kids are watching, they're learning and they're expecting. One of the things I think about as mentioning this is kind of like, how are we forming our children and grandchildren in Christ, right? Because like some of those other churches that are full of righteousness, they will be like, this is the Bible story. This is what this story means. And this is what you believe as a result. Not this is what you could believe. This is what you will believe as a result, mm-hmm. right? And I like how we often will tell the stories and we do that wondering piece. Sometimes we're like, I wonder what was going through Jesus's mind, or I wonder what might've been like. And sometimes we even wonder from different perspectives, right? We might not be Moses. I wonder what it's like to be you know, Miriam, or I wonder what it's like, for example, as indigenous people, we read the story of the Exodus and we cannot think of ourselves outside of the role of the Canaanites, right? Like we Mm -hmm. are the ones that got taken because that's what the church used as they took all our land, right? Whereas, you know, a black person can read that same story and they will identify heavily with the Israelites, right? Mm -hmm. And like, I had to really sort of shift my thinking when I read that story and be like, how am I like an Israelite or where am I like Israel? When are we like Pharaoh? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) When are we like Pharaoh? When are we like the Egyptians? You know, that kind of thing. I love the story about, in the Exodus story about Miriam. And I just visualize this like church lady, you know, with a tambourine, grabbing a tambourine, be like, all right, it's time to dance. We're done with this. We got to have some fun. When was the time or what is something that made you want to dance recently? 
had someone who had been marginalized by church life and has been on a journey, showed up to church with their partner a little bit late. But then the priest and the way that he talked about communion after he did the blessing and did the invitation to come to the altar, I've never felt so welcome to take communion in my life. And I was born and raised in this church. Mm. It wasn't just like, you know, whoever you are, whatever journey you are on. Like I've heard that one before. He said stuff like, you don't have to do anything to come to this table. The table's already set. We wouldn't have family dinner and not feed you because of who you are, who you love, what color skin you are. Like, this is God's feast. There's nothing you can do or not do to make it impossible for you to come to this table. And I was just like, yeah. (laughs) And I saw this person take communion. They didn't feel comfortable in other spaces. And this is not the first time we've gone to church together. But just the way that that priest invited folks to the feast, I've never seen that kind of invitation before in that way. I could feel it. I was like, oh, when church goes well, and I was high the rest of the day on that energy. <laughs> like when church feels like church, that's what it feels like. Nice. Here in Austin is a historically black university, Houston Tillotson. On Thursdays at 11 o'clock, they have their community worship. And it doesn't conflict with our schedule. We go to chapel every day, but on Thursdays, we have evening worship. So uh, intentionally going over to be in community, it's a very much student-led worship service. So you have your college students, undergraduate Mm. students, and they have a praise team. So singing, like I said, I grew up in another faith tradition, but the songs and the sound of my youth, being part of the worship service where it's like the spirit of God calls you up on your feet. You don't have Mm -hmm. a choice but to rock, move, clap. You know, it's the freedom to shout, which is not always an option in how we worship inside of our settings. And my mother, she was in an Episcopal church. Uh, Her priest graduated from the same seminary that I did. And, you know, it was a Baptist shout going on. We had the bass guitar. We had the drum set. We had the liturgical dancers. So that's how I knew, you know, Episcopal church. But it had been a long time since I had experienced that level of freedom, true freedom in worship. What made me fall in love, you know what I mean, with the people. I would say that that definitely is my Miriam moment and where I'm going to continue because I need that. I need to also be rejuvenated, if you will, in the spirit. We are givers and we live a life of ministry and, you know, but to be replenished in that way is a true gift and blessing from God. I haven't danced like Miriam with music or the tambourine. We don't have that at Good Shepherd, but I remember being just feeling this light and this love and this presence of the true spirit when our presiding bishop visited. Do you remember at Calvary, Shaniqua? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And he stood up and he preached about love, love, love. And I have never forgotten his sermon. He came down. He was with the congregation. He wasn't up in the pulpit. He was among the people bringing Jesus to us. It took a lot for me not to just jump up and hug him. I was so happy that he was there preaching Mm. and, you know, giving us communion. And what a blessing. And that's the only time I have come that close to standing up and dancing. Mm. 
I was thinking about recently our governor and legislature just passed a bill that will make it illegal for doctors to provide life-saving medical care to transgendered minors. Mm -hmm. So they can't do hormones, they can't do puberty blockers, they can't do none of that. That law passed the same day as the Transformation Project, which is like an organization supporting trans folks, did their gala. And I remember it was like, this sort of very mixed yeah. sense of feeling like it was should be celebratory, but then at the same time, here's this law that was really frustrating. And this young person got up and said, you know what, this sucks and this is horrible, but here's what's going to happen. And we're here to celebrate and we're here to raise money. And we're like, she just kind yeah. of like talked about how we can step forward and how we can we keep going and kind of like how you step into that water that the wind has blown apart. And like, she didn't use this Christian metaphor, but, or Jewish or whatever, but she, you know, talked about that. And I was like, yes, yes. And we are going to like eat some cheese and drink some wine and do that silent auction and dance. And we are going to raise some money. And tomorrow we can worry about how we're going to change this law or how we're going to protect our children. But today we are going to dance. And that's kind of how it is. Today we're going to dance. Yeah. Let's shift us into the gospel, which I'm guessing is what probably most people will preach on. I love all this other stuff. And I'm called to think about the Exodus and talk about how are we stepping out. There's been a lot of thinking about that. One of the churches I serve will be doing Easter Vigil. What stands out for you in the resurrection story? This one's kind of short, I noticed. What caught you up this time as you read it? Sometimes we read this and it doesn't have that second part, right? Where we actually see Jesus. Isn't it sometimes it's just that the ladies see the empty tomb and run off? Mm-hmm. It depends on which year we read. Because mm-hmm. I like that one better. But but the women actually seeing Jesus threw me off a little bit. Mm-hmm. I like this idea of like an empty tomb. We don't actually know. Okay. We just believe. Mm-hmm. And that the women are the ones who are just believing. They don't know if the body was stolen. They don't know if somebody dressed up in an outfit and sat on top of a stone. <laughs> they don't know. They just believe. When I think of when you said Miriam is like a church lady, to me, that's the gift of the church lady that as I get older, I feel like I'm really living into my old church lady self. Mm. They just believe in the resurrection. And then they tell the story. And they don't need facts and figures and witness in that way. They can just believe. I think the greeting struck me too. I fully live into the reading of sheer belief, but it was something about like, oh my God, and suddenly there was Jesus, right? They were afraid. I mean, they had joy, but they also had fear and to be met on the way to run and tell that, right? To go to the disciples and then suddenly here comes Christ (laughs) and it's like greetings. And to tell them in that moment, to offer the reassurance of do not be afraid. I am with you in this place and to just stop and to worship right there in that moment. The encounter of Christ, which yes, is different depending on the um, text we're reading. I think that is what struck me as well because we don't get that encounter all the time. Mm-hmm. I don't know, for me it did something. I was like, okay, you know, Shaniqua to your point that we see Christ in each other, you know what I mean? And we really begin to encounter each other differently in the suddenness, right? And that kind of hits me with this sense of urgency that we as disciples, as a dear friend of mine would say, Christ bearers in the world, you know, like there is is this sense of immediacy on our engagement in our baptismal covenant. And so yeah, just that meeting of Christ, it spoke to me in a different way just to. Hmm. You know, you hear the do not be afraid. I would be full of fear over where was my Lord? We put him in here, where did he go? And you're reassured, there's this reassurance that do not be afraid. Another part of it that I like is that Jesus sends everybody forth, just like he did the woman at the well, go, tell him you've seen me. Mm-hmm. And that I'll be there. You know what I mean? And I'll be there. I'm on the way. Yep. 
I was thinking both the angel and Jesus said, do not be afraid. And sometimes when I preach, I say like, when you say don't be afraid, that usually means that they are afraid. You know, like if I saw an angel, I would probably have to change my pants, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. And so the angel, I feel like maybe the first one's like, don't be afraid. Like, I'm not gonna, because this is like, appearance like lightning. I, I'd be scared of that. Yeah. <laughs> but then I feel like the Jesus don't be afraid is, you know, Jesus is like, hey girl, hey. And then it's like, all of this weight that you've been carrying, all this fear that you've been holding, all this that you know you thought I was dead, all of this you can now let go. And I just imagine like those moments when, I don't know if you have like a grandma or an auntie or maybe it's your mom or somebody, it could be a male figure too, but like when you're just having a rough time and then they just come and they give you that embrace, you know, and you can just mm-hmm. let it all out and let it all go. And I just feel like that's probably what happened. They just fell at his feet and mm-hmm. cry, ugly cry and be like, oh, I'm so glad you're mm-hmm. here and I can let all this stuff go. And I feel like that's the don't be afraid that he said in that moment. And they took hold of him. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> Hell yeah. It feels like the first time you see people post-pandemic lockdown, like mm. post-lockdown. Yeah. Yes. That moment of you really are alive, not yes. just on my screen, mm-hmm. but now in physical body. The amount of times where I've seen people and you go, are we okay to touch? Like, let's get permission and consent. And then they just dive in. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's kind of what this is reminding me of as you say that, Shaniqua. Nice. You finally get to encounter somebody after not knowing if they were dead or alive. Yeah. What does it mean to you that it was women who first learned the story of Jesus' resurrection? And I just realized that all the guests today are women. So what does that mean to you? And how does that sit with you? I remember the, I can't say his name right, Jurgen Moltmann said, without women preachers, we would have no knowledge of the resurrection, right? What can we say? He went to women who were no better than chattel. They had their own enslavement there. They were not allowed to hold jobs. He went to the people that he knew would follow him in faith to spread his news. If you look at the 12 chosen, they were not people of high standard. They were tax collectors and fishermen. And he always went to the persons who were the lowly. Hmm. He didn't go to kings and... He went to those of us who I think he could trust, felt he could trust the women. I think it was Mother Christina who did a great sermon on the women at the tomb. And I mean, it brought me to tears. And I was so proud to be a woman, a woman looking out at all those grisly faces, all those men out there. And I, you know, I just, it was great. It hits different for me in the sense that growing up Episcopalian, I was born in 1980. My entire life, women have been allowed to be priests. Mm-hmm. My entire life, women have been in leadership positions. My entire life, women were allowed to be the preaching voices of the church, have often been the people that saved the church, Mm -hmm. have been the ones to make sure that everything happens. I went to Union and got an MA in theology, and I interviewed women of color priests. And just hearing women who were ordained like 1979, (laughs) the stories of those women versus People in like 2000, 2017, sometimes those experiences were very different and sometimes they were incredibly the same. Hmm. Even if I don't have an experience where I know of women who are in this oppressed position, they've always been the ones that preach and tell the story. I recognize that it's a complex thing to say women are the center of this story with Jesus. For me, it's always been like, oh, of course they're the ones that went to the tomb first. Of course they're the ones that are going to go tell the disciples. This is what women have been doing for all of history. (laughs) That's how this works. I've always heard when I hear people preach about, isn't this great that the women were the ones? And I'm like, isn't that the way it's always been? I'm very confused. 
But hasn't God always raised women up? I do remember the times when women weren't allowed to do that in 65. And my mother, God bless her, she was June Cleaver with her little pearls. And she never left the house. She always kept house for my dad. And so I'm from that era of seeing women kind of held down, held down by the thumb of the man until Gloria Steinem stepped in and Bella Abzug and said, no, we're done. And God, God saying, no, it's not going to happen. Like, I wish that I had those images of Mm -hmm. women being, you know, in these leadership positions Mm -hmm. in the church. Now, we always had the church ladies, don't get me wrong, and they ran everything. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. We also had our deacons and we had our pastor. And those were more male-gendered stations. I don't remember the festive holiday it was, but it was um, from a priest who was talking about women's ambitions and that for those of us gathered, young ladies gathered in the sanctuary on that day, that we might want to reconsider our ambitious nature to know that we needed our male partners in order to fulfill or satisfy the life that we intended to live. I wish that I would have had different images or different experiences. Mm. At some parts, I would say that this journey... that I've been on has been quite challenging. So in my mind, you know, yeah, of course, it was the women who received Christ. It was the women who were standing at the cross. It was the women who, you know, were responsible for all the burial processes and then the ones to go and tell the story. But for whatever reason, even right here, right now, today, the experiences of women are not being heard. You know, Mm. when we think about our mothers whose children are being murdered. Mm. Are we not hearing the cries? Are we not empathizing? Do we not feel the pain? My own journey continues to be one where self-advocacy at times feels like a great burden, Mm. where I thank God for the female clergy and mentors and lay leadership that have surrounded me. But in the moment that I arrived at seminary, that voice was not evident. It appeared through the Union of Black Episcopalians. It appeared through Seminarians of Color Union. But stepping onto a seminary's campus, for me, there may have been one or two where I do appreciate divine revelation, but it was an act of seeking out those examples, which I do pray that, you know, like my daughter who's been raised in the church is 20. Like she, I think shares your experience. Like, I mean, she's been surrounded, right? Mm -hmm. There are those, you know, like me, we need to tell about the Marys. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I agree. Mm -hmm. And let it be known the great gifts brought to ministry. I was thinking about that. This is in the Gospel of Matthew, right? And all the Gospels are written by men. And I was like, here it is, just like usually, you know, all the women do all the work and all the men get all the, cre- <laughs> all the, men get all the credit. Typical. <laughs> right. In our Lakota culture, men have to do a lot of the ceremonial pieces, like sweat and sun dancing and stuff. And a lot of that is because women don't have to do that. Not because they can't, but because they don't have to, because they're already considered in this sacred way. Like mm-hmm. men have to go to sweat every month because we don't bleed like women do. So they get to self-clean. So they are already considered sacred in that way. And we have to do it to kind of make up for the lack that we don't kind of think. Anyway, so it's like a different way of thinking about it. Whereas I know some cultures, when women are on their moon, like that's like they're considered unholy or bad or whatever. That's mm. like the opposite of kind of how we think about it. That's when they're like the most powerful. Yeah. I love that. I do too. I love that too. 
what's something that you wish was resurrected or what's something that maybe kind of like them that you looked for but wasn't there because it was raised in my let go land in a post lockdown every disaster that could happen happened world i don't make goals anymore <laughs> i don't have a five-year plan i just kind of know what i need to do today and i know kind of some semblance of where I kind of want to go. But this very defined, I'm going to go to the tomb and see Jesus resurrected. That's what's going to happen. Excuse me for all those who believe in manifestation. That's not my way. I'm way too cynical. I'm a child of immigrants. We don't do that. So like, <laughs> you just try some stuff yeah. and you center yourself in spirit and you move. And so if I stop looking for something, it will appear kind of like those women. When I seek out the thing, I may not find it. But when I move in spirit, the spirit said, go and tell the disciples. And that's when they run into Jesus. Hmm. It wasn't when they got to the tomb looking for the goal that they were looking for to go take care of their Lord. It was when they went and followed spirit. I am really trying to embrace that God is on my side. Like the world is conspiring in my favor, as Paulo Coelho talks about in The Alchemist. If the world is conspiring for love and justice and joy for all people, like how do I sit in spirit as much as possible so that I can find Jesus, so that I can find what I'm looking for rather than deciding what I'm looking for and then try to make that thing happen? Because every time I do that, my life falls apart. And everything is destroyed. I had very high plans for 2020. And then God was like, yeah, you're going to sit in this house all year. <laughs> I think that's the thing that I want like to resurrect it. There was so much time. We were given reflective time. There were moments, I mean, in the middle of the day, we're Washington, D.C., Northern Virginia area that's like always a hustle bustle. People were just out. In the middle of the day, like enjoying the sunshine, listening to birds, you know, walking and being. And it's like, I need some of that back. Mm. We're now full steam ahead. And it's like, I don't want us to lose that intentional, divine, reflective space, those contemplative moments. And then my mom would always be like, oh, they want immediate gratification. I'm like, yeah, time out. The divine life reached in and showed us another way <laughs> of being. And I pray that that too is given back life. Hmm. It was healthy for me, you know, and to be able to have that time. A lot of churches are complaining about like, we need to get more. We just had our best retreat too. And almost everybody said that we need to get more numbers and we need more money, more numbers and more money. And I was like, hold on. I was like, this is kind of like, you know, like if you turn on the water outside and you're at the end of your hose and no water is coming out, nobody stands there and holds the hose and says, oh, I'm suffering from a lack of water. I need more water. Nobody says that. They go and they look along the hose and they see if there's a kink, you know, maybe they see if the water's turned off on the inside, like they're going to do stuff to fix it. What's happening here is we're all saying we need more numbers and we need more people, more money. And I'm like, that's just like you complaining about there being a lack of water. Like we have to figure out what we're doing. And so I was like, I wish that we would let go of our fear of rejection and let go. That's what I think we need to die. Let go of our fear of rejection and really start reaching out and building relationships because that is how you are going to grow the church. That's how Jesus did it. That's how the disciples did it. That's how the apostles did it. That's how we could do it too. But we have to let that fear go. And in doing so, building these authentic relationships, not in some creepy love bombing, sneaky Jesus kind of way, but right. like in an actual authentic, genuine way 
which may mean the people who we have relationships with might not be there on Sunday, but it might mean the Sudanese congregation worshiping on Sunday afternoon. It might be the people IAA coming into our congregations. It might be if there's a natural disaster and folks are on cots on our floor in the parish hall, you know, whatever. It could be all kind of different things, but that's what I wish we could resurrect instead of this toxic nostalgia that everybody has. I remember in the 50s when we had 300 people on Sunday or whatever. Even as somebody who has those memories, right, this ASA of this big Sunday service and the Saturdays when the church was open and kids were there all day, they now have other options. Mm-hmm. So what is the next thing that we're going to do that makes people feel welcomed and loved and appreciated? Also, somebody reminded me that ASA is only what happens on Sunday morning. And we act as if that's the only place where Jesus hangs out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> When you say that, I'm remembering, oh, my God, a clergy pal. He's great. He does CrossFit. When he is locked in to this community, that's church for him. Mm-hmm. I remember, you know, I was faithful with Mazumba family in Durham, North Carolina. And I mean, we're Monday through Thursday. We show up for each other. The gym is packed. We're in there. And that was church. That was fellowship. That was togetherness. That was, you know, even with as many folk who were in there, the relationships were built such that we noticed when one of our members, if you will, was not in attendance, right? And it was like, oh, okay. And then we checked on and, and to see. And I think even with like ministry during these last few years, the best times were just in the streets, just being with the people, like campus ministry. I think when I started, it, it had zero students, but we were able in a year's time to grow that ministry to 15, 20. But it was just because people just needed a place to belong and just be and with no expectations. Like there was, <laughs> was no expectations. If we were able to dip into, you know, um, some of our liturgical, you know, services, Compline, if you will, mm-hmm. that then created the space for Bible study, then that created the space for, but it was just first and foremost, a place to gather, to have a sense of belonging with absolutely zero <laughs> expectations. It's a place for you to come get some food. We're going to break bread together and just be people, just be human. It's like community is a thing that needs to be resurrected. Mm. Right. A deep appreciation for what community means. Yes. Yes. Amen. Even if you are eight old people who are about to die in the next 10 years, y'all are a community. Community. (laughs) When two or three are gathered together there in the midst, shall I be like, what are we doing? Why are we complaining about these moments of community? We have been in community and Dr. Ray preached on those moments as the glimpses, right? The resurrection moments um, where there is food and dance and laughter and games and, you know, just being, just showing up um, and allowing God and Christ to show up and show out for us and just (laughs) being open to that level of engagement with the spirit of God. What tips do you have for preaching Easter Vigil this year? And I know one I think they do at Good Shepherd sometimes is they just read the St. John Chrysostom Easter Vigil sermon. Then you don't have to prepare because usually people are prepared a lot. But what are some tips you have on preaching? I'm always going to suggest that you don't preach if you are the regular preacher. Maybe, actually, there is no sermon. Mm. And there is just space for silent reflection. I like that. Sitting in the silence. We did it for most of the service. We are so excited and celebrating. What if even in celebratory spaces, we found moments of silent reflection? Hmm. With intentionality of bringing the congregations in the diocese together, our bishop preached 
I just recall like thematically, it was like a journey through this love experience from the Monday, Thursday to Good Friday to the Holy Saturday. Like if I remember correctly, he sought out with intention of us as we journeyed together through the story. I love the silence. I love the sitting in the silence. For what was spoken, it definitely was an intentionality on what it means to be loved and to give love. As a Benedictine who does a lot of silence, I love the silence. I do. It might shock our congregation because they are used to hearing Mother Christina read. What is it she reads, Shaniqua? Because it went right out of my head. Easter Sermon of St. John Chrysostom. There you go. You know, it's lovely and all that, but when it comes to that, it needs to be silent. Because mm-hmm. you've had the ringing of the bells, you know, you've turned on your lights, you've had the New Testament readings. So just sit with it now. Just sit with the joy of the risen Lord now. Mm -hmm. That could be the opening line. Mm -hmm. Sit with the joy of the risen Lord, Noah. (laughs) Yep. Praise be to God. Mm -hmm. Imagine that. Yeah. I like what you said, Valerie, about that preaching, like where were the resurrection moments? I always like including the congregation in it. And maybe we say, let's sit with the joy of the risen Lord right now. What's a time where you have felt the risen Lord? They can maybe share with their neighbor, or maybe they share it out loud. Like if it's a lot of people, maybe share with your neighbor. But if it's you know a small congregation, let them tell us what is the moment where you felt this, or what is something that has died that was resurrected, or you know find some sort of focus that they could, because then that's going to connect them, you know, and that will connect with each other, right? Shared stories have so much value. God, mm-hmm. yeah, I like that too. All right. Thank you so much for being willing to be guests and sharing your wisdom and your thoughts and your ideas and experiences. It's been great having you. And I really appreciate all the gifts and conversation today. Absolutely. Thank you for having us. Thank you. If you want to learn more about Beloved Community, visit episcopalchurch.org forward slash beloved hyphen community. Thanks to our guests, Valerie, Tammy, and Tamara. Thanks also to our production team, especially Chris and Asma. If what you heard today resurrected something in you, please rate, review, and of course, share our podcast. Until next time, let your light shine. You're invited to join thousands of Episcopalians, neighbors, and friends this summer at the Love Always Revival at the KFC Yum Center in Louisville, Kentucky. On Saturday, June 22nd, Get immersed in inspiring worship and community, deepen your love for God, kick off the 81st General Convention, and extend a warm welcome to folks discovering the Episcopal Church. The revival is free to attend, so bring your friends. If you're from a neighboring diocese, check in with your diocesan revival champion to find out about group travel options. You can find more information along with registration at iam.ec.com. Love always.